Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Last time we studied Joel, we saw that God's previous judgment should cause us to mourn. This week we will see that the warning of God's future judgment should cause us to repent. In the first part of Joel 2, uh, we will see warnings of a coming army that would be absolutely terrifying to face, and this should cause the people of God to drop everything and come to God in repentance. Joining me today is Matt Barfield. Hi. And Brandon Hamilton. Hello. And we are looking at Lesson 6, believe it or not, in our series, The Day of the Lord. And this is on rend your hearts or tear your hearts and uh, rend your hearts and, and not your garments. So um, imagine how terrified you would be if an army of super robots came and attacked your city. Imagine when an army of robots okay. comes and attacks your city. <laughs> That's what I thought when I read this. I was like, this might be the kind of terror we have to face. But yeah, anyway, there continue. we go. Yeah. All right, well. You can't see it where I'm sitting right now, but Matt Barfield does have a tinfoil hat on. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here and I don't see it. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's a joke. All right. Never mind. Um, imagine how terrified you'd be if an army of super robots came and attacked your city. Uh, they run faster than any human army possibly could. They have pinpoint accuracy with a gun from a mile out. They can clear tall buildings with a single leap. Uh, now, this type of doomsday scenario might sound like the stuff of science fiction and movies, but in Joel 2... Uh, God paints uh, kind of a similar doomsday scenario. He uses poetic language to describe a foreign army of cosmic proportions charging the people of Judah. They can leap on tops of mountains. You can hit them with weapons and they don't flinch. They are like a giant fire. Before them, the land is lush and fruitful, and after them, it's the Sahara Desert. And Joel builds on the imagery of the locust from chapter 1 to describe a human army that looks kind of locust-like as it swarms and ravages the land. Uh, But the message here is that it's not too late. Uh, God follows up this terrifying warning with an offer of hope, the offer of repentance. Uh, Much like in Jonah, where we have the situation of Nineveh, God's warning of coming judgment is actually an invitation to repent. And I love uh, what they say there, uh, the king says in Nineveh, when he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto the Lord, or unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. And the interesting thing is, when Jonah gives that message, there's actually no uh, offer of repentance right. or turning. Mm-hmm. It's just 40 days, this place is gone. And yet, a pagan king looks at that and says, well, if God just wanted to wipe us off the map, he, did, he doesn't have to announce it beforehand. Maybe he's telling us to give us another chance. Yeah. So I think that one of the questions I want to start with that's interesting, even as we think about Nineveh and Jonah and the prophets. Why do you think it was that Nineveh repented of their sins while Israel and Judah over and over again are warned and yet harden their hearts to the prophets? The first thing I thought of when I read that question was uh, Proverbs 29, he that being off reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And if there was a people that was oft reproved, reproved, it was, it was Israel, it was Judah. So, you know, there is that principle that you got all these warnings, you know, that, that people eventually just, don't do it. I think there's also um, sort of a way that I think it applies to us as believers, especially believers of second and third generation where, where our grandparents and our parents have trusted Christ as Savior. We trusted Christ as Savior. We've gotten so used to, uh, you know, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You repent. Okay, we've done that. And we don't feel the weight of it. It's, it's always, it's so important that we um, continue to take our faith to the edge to people that are like Ninevites where we can see this, this stark contrast of what happens when you repent and, and the kind of thing, it's a good reminder to us all of, of what it looks like when sin has completely overwhelmed you and then you turn to God. 
And I think, I think for us, it feels like we dabble in sin and we're somehow still in charge of it. And, and what God's telling us is you're not in charge of it. It actually is, is undoing you. And you don't know it because you think you're okay because you're kind of balancing things. But the principle is the same. You're playing with sin and it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy you. It's going to overwhelm you. And it's, it's helpful to see these kind of Ninevite reactions or, or people that are first-generation Christians that were truly overwhelmed by sin and would say, okay, that was me. I was overwhelmed. I, didn't ha- I, was, I saw it as overwhelming. I felt the overwhelm. I felt myself being destroyed. And I turned to God, and he did this great renewal work. He changed me. He saved me. He forgave me. You see that. You need to see that. We, we need to, that's why it's so important for us all to go and take the gospel to unsaved people, not just for them, but for us. Well, and I think, too, you, you have something similar to the Garden of Eden where, you know, you're looking around, and everything's really, really good. And God says, don't touch that, or it's all going to fall apart. And you're like, I don't know. Is it really going to fall apart? Right. I think for especially people who are growing up as second and third generation Christians, and they've you know, maybe gone to the Christian school or been homeschooled and they, you know, they go to church regularly and they're in the Christian bubble and they see a lot of God's blessings in that bubble. And then we warn them, if you leave that bob, that bubble, it pops and all uh, those blessings go away and you do not want what they have over there. And they get the, you know, the Netflix and the popular music. And that's, sure. that's how they get the vision of the world mediated to them. And they're like, oh, I don't know. It doesn't look that bad over there. Right. And I think, like you said, having those, that first or, um, generation Christian or taking it to the edges and seeing people whose lives are being destroyed by sin and being like, do you really want this? Yeah. Because that's not what they see. You don't, you don't see the life of, you know, three failed marriages and, you know, children with, you know, in these messy family situations. And that's not to say God can't clean all that up, but it, it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm working with young adults, you know, I, I deal with the singles and it's just it's so it's so alluring at, sure. at the at the front end, and sometimes you have to be like, look at look at the back end, look at what sin will do, look at how it will destroy you. Yeah, my mind automatically went to First Corinthians ten, um, and it was talking about all the things that happened to the Israelites. They were recorded for our examples, um, and we should learn from them. And it says in verse ten, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these were written for our examples. Then you get down to get down to verse twelve. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And I think a big part of that is the Israelites and we as Christians who's grown up in Christianity or have been in Christianity for a while, there might come a point where in our pride we think we have ground to stand on <laughs> and mm. we really don't. Um, it's all because of the grace of Christ. And when that pride creeps in, we're like, well, we're God's people or the Israelites thought that. Um, and we got to be careful that we don't think that we stand because yeah. we can fall. I love how that passage begins, too, because in verse 1 he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how yep. that all our fathers were under the cloud, right? They're all, I mean, they're all moving under the Shekinah glory, and all passed through the sea. I mean, you think about that. And yeah. all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual meat, probably a reference there to manna, and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. So he's alluding to these incredible spiritual privileges that they had, and they thought to themselves, well, we've, I mean, we're not going to fail. It's kind of the too big to fail mentality. Like, after all, God's given to us. And that's where you get verse 12 where he's like, no, they failed. They, they fell pretty hard. With, mo- with many of them, God was not pleased. And I think Matt and I were talking about this the other day. You say, how many of them was God not pleased with? And the answer is all but two. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of them God was displeased with. And yeah, I think that we do. We, we tend to rest on our spiritual privileges and Paul in all scripture says, no, take heed lest, lest you fall. And that verse 6 is pretty interesting too. Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after yeah. evil things. Yeah, well, that's as a great. As they also lusted. Wow, what a great 
statement. We need to hear that. Yeah, we we can lust after evil things, and the evil things were just like food. Like yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. It was. It, but it was wanting something meat. outside of God's will. Yeah, it was, it was outside of God's plan. Verse seven. They sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And uh, we got to be careful that that's not where we head. Yeah. So as we look at this passage of Joel chapter 2, begins with a description of the coming army and God's warning, and uh, it's all future tense verbs at this point in Joel, so it's this is going to come, this is going to come. It's not something that's happened yet. It's something that uh, is going to happen or could potentially happen. And there's questions about when Joel was written, and so some of that makes a little bit of difference with all of this. Um, If he's writing early, then it's either a warning uh, that God will bring Assyria, and perhaps Israel does repent, at least partially, and that's put off. Or it's a warning uh, of Babylon that's coming, um, in which case they don't listen and that army does come. And it begins off uh, with a warning. Uh, Joel chapter 2, it calls for the, I believe it's called the horn, or let me pull it up here, uh, the trumpet, which is the shofar. And this is kind of the uh, the air raid siren was the way one uh, resource I used put it. You know, this is the the warning, hey, everyone get in the city's walls, there's an, there's an army coming. Um and yet, Joel goes on to describe this army and let people know, like, you can you can be ready for this army, but it's not going to matter because they can they can jump up on the walls. Um, uh, so, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep going. The description of the coming army, he uses uh, these many, many uh, descriptions of the ways that this army will come. Uh, verse 4, the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of the chariots on the tops of mountains, they shall leap like the noise of a flame. A fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness or shall become pale. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one on his ways. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. I mean, this is like, you know, like I said at the beginning, this is doomsday scenario. This is this is the end. Like you cannot stop this army. Like that, you, you you thrust them through with the sword, and they just keep marching. They don't break their ranks. There's there's no stopping these guys. Uh, they shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run up the wall. They shall climb upon the house. They shall enter into the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heaven shall tremble. The sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice. Notice this before His army, for His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Uh, you know, it's kind of e- easy with, with this to see the effects of the sin, right? When God brings an army and destroys the entire city. In what ways does sin uh, wreak havoc in modern America or in the church or in our lives? Uh, because I think that one of the dangers that we have is not that sin is somehow less destructive, but that the way it destroys us tends to be more subtle and harder to notice until it's too late, until you're looking back at the end of your life and you think, boy, what a what a fool I've been. I think I think part of the thing that we miss, as you said, is it for the part of this it's too late to see when things get early on. God can see in the extremes, but we God can see in the everyday, but we only see in the extremes. So God can look at the end of the argument, the ideological result of this thing. So when we have this concept that's entered into our minds wrong, we're thinking incorrectly about God. We're thinking incorrectly about ourselves. We're thinking incorrectly about our, our create the creation. And we're not letting the word of God inform us and change how we think. We're not letting the spirit of God to work that word in our heart so that we're renewed by the washing of water with the words, so that our minds are transformed. Right? We have to think differently. We have to let God move the, the, the points in our brain by which we filter events. And I think that's why it's hard for us to see it. It seems like an idea, 
right? This, this sin isn't an action. I didn't hit somebody. I just thought about it, right? It's just an idea. But the issue is that, that, that the extreme of that, when you hate a brother in your heart, you've, you've, committed a, you've committed murder already. When you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. So there's, there's, there's these things that are, that are, they look to us like just ideas or concepts, but God says the end of them is this, and, and he treats it all as one part of a, a whole. Not that we're guilty of things we haven't done, but that we've introduced this principle of sin and of wrongness into our thinking that's going to have bitter fruit. Well, I think one phrase you hear in America pretty often is, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody, I can do it. Yeah. And when you hear that, you think of like an immediate hurt and harm. Mm, but yeah. when when you're diving into sin, you're not thinking of the long game right. and the destruction that brings. And I was reading through a verse with our teenagers this past Sunday, um, and, and we use it often for friendship because it's about friends. Uh, a wise man, uh, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise but a companion of fools. And if you're going completely parallel, you'd expect it to say, we'll be foolish. But it says a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And it goes right to the consequences of the, the foolishness of our actions. And I think um, in America, we, we're really good at not thinking about spiritual things as reality. Um, mm -hmm. the, there are things to entertain us in movies. Uh, spiritual realities are uh, non-existent after death to a lot of people. And that, that long, slow burn of the destruction of sin is really hard to convince somebody of right away. And I think that a tactic that Satan has used in America is, hey, all these spiritual things, they're, they're not real. But when you go to other places in the world, it, it, everything is about spirituality and the spiritual realm and religion. Um, but in America, for some reason, we, we have fallen for the, the lie that, hey, this sin isn't a big deal. There's no consequences. But when you just look at the harm that is caused in families and Hey, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody, you don't know the damage that it does to a child to watch the destruction of relationships around oh, them. It's I terrible. Mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And the keys bearing bitter fruit for generations. I, right. I think of the, of the desolation that sin wrought in Jacob's life mm. when he, when he has multiple wives, right? And it says, the Bible says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's not a big deal. And then God says, when he saw that Leah was hated, right? So God, God's, God's drawing to the ultimate conclusion. What doesn't really appear to everybody else at the time. It looks like, oh, he's got these two wives and he likes Rachel more, but God goes, no, Leah's loved, Rachel's loved and Leah's hated. She's in the place of hatred. That's why when he, when, when Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to hate father and mother and wife and children. We have to it's not just that we we love him so much that all other loves are his hatred. It's that when he's not first, he's in a place of hatred. Like he sees the ultimate ideological end of this thing that we only mm. grasp imprecisely, that we only see as sort of an idea or a concept. And he goes, well, when you bring this thing in, like look look what he said to Adam and Eve. In the day you eat this, you're going to die. And, the, and, and, and they, they eat and they're still breathing. And it's like, well, did he really mean it? Yeah, look around. Look at right. how bad this is. This yeah. is really, really, really bad. And we, yeah, we what did Satan say? You, you'll, it's not, not that bad. Yeah. It's not that bad. Right. And like 6,000, 8,000 years later, we're like, wow, this was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and it, we haven't even seen the whole thing. It gets worse, right? It's going to get worse and worse because of that simple action yeah. all those years ago. I think uh, C.S. Lewis made an interesting observation along these lines, too, that's always stuck with me. And I'm paraphrasing at this point, but he said, every time we choose, we change the central part of us that chooses a little bit. You know, every choice, you know, that yeah. that we make changes who we are a little bit. And mm -hmm. he said, and our life 
with a sum total of these hundreds and hundreds of daily decisions mm. is is changing that central part of us into either a creature of heaven or a creature of hell. Wow. And I thought that was just really profound, the idea that when I make a choice to sin, it's not like that's a one-time thing and that sin's okay and that's done. No, that just changed who I was as a person, mm. and it and it moved me away from God, and it made it harder for me to see the glory of God and the beauty of God, and it made me harder to delight in God. And um, mm. when I make those choices, it's it's a, a step away from God, and a step away from God is a step away from the place of life and joy and fulfillment to the place of death and, and barrenness and, and waste. And you quench the Spirit as a believer as, as you sin and callous your heart, and the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience, and you're moving farther and farther away from those as you're quenching the Spirit every choice you make to, to sin against God. I need, to, I need to meditate on that a little more. I think that that throws some light on uh, Book of Revelation. Him, him that is unjust, let him be unjust still. Him that is righteous, let him be righteous still. I read those verses. I'm thinking, what is that? What is that talking mm-hmm. about? And I think it's. I think it comes to the core of what we're talking about here. Um, we we need to realize what we are, what Christ says we are. We need to let that be what's in our mind. We need to let that dominate all these choices that we make. And when we don't. It's it's not okay. It, it might not be distru- dis, you know complete desolation, but it's not okay. Yeah. Well, let's move on and let's talk about the second part, uh, verses twelve through seventeen, and this is talking about the repentance. And this is, I think, some of the most um, powerful uh, verses in all of Scripture on the theme of repentance. Therefore, also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And here we get our our phrase for the lesson, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. And who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. And so it starts off with this phrase, rend your heart and not your garments. It used to be that when they would go through these fasting and weeping and mourning rituals, one of the things they would do, they they would tear their clothes, which... Which is saying something, because they couldn't go down to Walmart and pick up a couple of t-shirts and be like, okay, here are the t-shirts. I mean, clothing was harder to come by back then. Uh, people didn't have, you know, 20 garments. And so when you tear your clothes, you're showing that you are really emotionally distraught. And it's kind of interesting because God looks at that and says, okay, good, but that's not good enough. I, I, want, I want you. I want you to genuinely in your heart, I, I don't want you to just go through the motions. I want your heart involved in this. Um, so as we think about that, what does it mean? What does it look like for us to, um, rend our hearts? How might we put on a display of repentance for others, perhaps even God? And what is the difference between an impressive show designed to impress God and true, genuine heart repentance? I mean, I, I think a pretty quick thought that came into my mind is repenting when no one has necessarily caught you in your sin. Um, it's really easy to put on a show of repentance when you've been caught, uh, but when you are genuinely s- sorrowful unto repentance, uh, that's going to be something that would come about even without someone catching you in your sin. And that, that's some of my quick initial thoughts uh, about a difference there. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm thinking through a little bit here. I, I want to be careful how I say this, but um, you know, the, the Ninevites repented by tearing their garments. Mm-hmm. Like they took off their nice garments and they put on sackcloth and ashes. What God wants from Israel is something more than, than that. And it's, it's almost like 
as believers, we say, okay, I repented when I was young and I got saved. Mm-hmm. And, and now, so I've done that piece and, and now, okay, if I have to repent again, I'll go do that again. Like, but that's not what the Lord wants now. Now he wants us. In other words, we're supposed to be growing. Okay. So if, if our spiritual growth hasn't been progressing, then our repentance and our turning needs to be progressing. It's, it's not less or just what I did before. It's more. It's, it's more demonstrative. It's more committed. It's, more, it's, it's not just a small adjustment. Like I can go back and say, oh, I said sorry there. I'll say sorry again. We'll be okay. No, it's sorry and here's, here, here's where I am. And Lord, here's what I, Lord, do more with me. Take more. It's not like we're going to go back to where we were. We need to move forward into something bigger because we were supposed to be doing that already. So, uh, so going back the way we had done before in principle is right. But in effect, it needs to be bigger. Does that make sense? Or is that too too obscure? Yeah, and to add, to add on to that, I think, especially as a youth pastor, I think we can very quickly focus with teenagers and people in general, like, don't sin, don't sin. And we think, like, that's enough. But yeah. a heart for God isn't going to just not sin. Right. I, am I trying to raise my children just not to do stuff? Right. I, I mean, what, what kind of – that? that's not a purposeful – um, raising of my children or even purpose of my life is not just don't sin and I'm okay. Right. Um, it ought to lead to repentance and righteousness Yeah. and living out what Jesus told me to live out and um, being gracious and giving. And I do love, I'm kind of changing gears here a little bit, but the reason he tells us to turn is because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Um, and so he takes it right back to God's character there as well. So when we turn to him, we can expect God to be long-suffering and patient with us. And I know I changed directions there a little bit, but I just loved the whole reason behind rend your heart. Why? God's, God's yeah. gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And we can forget that if we're just like, just don't sin. I don't want to be punished. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes mature believers or people that have been saved longer will look at someone who newly gets saved and sees them repent from some gross sin or some you know, great difficulty or some complete addiction or something like that and go, yeah, that's good. And that's, they need to get in. They need to come here as if there's nothing for me to rend my heart about. Right. Mm. Right. I'm sort of looking there kind of smugly like, oh, we've been waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about yeah. time you got here. Welcome to the good people club. Right. Now we're all good. And, just, and be like this. And all of a sudden we get embarrassed because that guy's got zeal right. and he starts doing stuff that we won't do. And we're like, well, now <laughs> you'll, you'll learn in a little bit. You'll cool your jets and, and we'll all just kind of keep pace. And it's like, no, 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 I need to rent my, that guy just rent his garment. I need to rent my heart, right? I need to, I, there needs to be a reflection of the life of Christ in me that continues to grow and grow and grow and doesn't stop until we see him face to face. I think too, when we, when we're looking at this theme, uh, this idea of, rending our hearts and not our garments. For me, as, I, as I've meditated on this, I think some of it comes back to I, I can feel really bad, badly, but am I really willing to make the change? So, um, you know, it's really easy to, to go into the prayer closet, especially if you're like Israel and you've just you've sinned and you know that it's wrong and you're ready to, to, ready to repent, and you go into the prayer closet and you just, Lord, I'm so, 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 so sorry. Um, but... I, I know in my own life, the question then becomes, okay, am I ready to do the things then to make the changes, the necessary changes to change my life? And sometimes those are big changes. Uh, sometimes I think they're small changes, and I think the smaller changes are sometimes harder to make because it's easy to talk yourself out of them. 
be like, well, that's not really a big deal. And I'm sure it won't be a problem again. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I'll never do it again. Um, and I think part of what he's getting at here is like, I don't just want an impressive display of emotion. I want to see a change in a life because I want to see it. I want to see you change in the way you think about sin. And I want to see your heart shift back towards me and away from sin. If we look at an unsaved person and say, they need an infusion of God's grace and don't look at ourselves and say, I need an infusion of God's grace. We're seeing this wrong. My mind immediately went to Luke seven, um, where, uh, Jesus is interacting with two different people. And then he gets to verse 47. Um, he says, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven. The same loveth a little. And, when we don't have an understanding of how much we've actually been forgiven, uh, our love diminishes. And when we minimize our sin, our love is also minimized for what God has done for us and that he is merciful and gracious. And it's going to turn our heart back to God when we repent. And we, we have an accurate view of, of what our sin is because Simon in this passage was thinking that, Hey, he deserved God's love. But this woman that came in gave every, gave everything she had and it led her to, action and we can't just be still and do nothing and say oh everything's good <laughs> right. yeah well brandon had brought up this uh, verse before but let's take just a moment and look at this describes god's character here and god's character should compel us to repent for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the lord your god so it's time for our trivia question, where is that description of God taken from? Anyone remember? Sounds similar to Jonah. It actually does. <laughs> Jonah. So that shows up in two other places, this string of adjectives and descriptions. And Jonah's one place where it's almost a verbatim quote. Are we talking about Moses mm -hmm. seeing God's glory? Yeah. Hearing the angels describe him? Yep. So you guys both got one. Congratulations. Oh, look at that. Both of you get a participation We've trophy. We've trivialized this. Okay. I mean, wait, wait, that's not right. Um, so, in uh, so, yeah, in, in, in Exodus chapter 34, God causes his glory to pass before Moses. And he says uh, almost exactly the same thing that we see here. Let me actually just look that passage up. Exodus chapter 34, uh, verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. So especially uh, that early section, that string of adjectives uh, there is designed to point us back to God's character. This is how God reveals himself. And this is the core of who God is. When, when God says, this is my glory, this is who I am, he points to the fact that he is a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. And that he repented him of the evil, or kind of a weird uh, old Englishy way to say that he he changes his mind concerning the disaster that he's about to bring. And um, it's a wonderful, wonderful thought to think about our God uh, treating us that way and uh, interacting with us in that way. And then as we as we wrap this up here, it says, "Blow the trumpet in Zion and sanctify a fast and call a solemn assembly. Gather the people." Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children uh, and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. And so the point here is bring everybody. <laughs> yeah. uh, bring, the, bring the kids, even the ones that are nursing still. Uh, bring the old people. Uh, 
tell the newlyweds that they need to <laughs> they need to leave their chamber and they need to come. Like right. nothing takes priority over this. So, uh, question that I put here: Why is it that we sometimes put off repentance? We don't want people to know. Yeah, we think we have more time. Fear of man. Other things are more important. Yeah. Well, and, and we don't. We probably we don't think that it's really going to be that big a deal, or that we'll we'll have another chance. We'll have another opportunity to. And I think good intentions. We mm. we have these good intentions of what we're going to do, what we're going to do, and we soothe ourselves with those good intentions. But then we don't take action right now, and we don't know how long we have. Um, I think there's also a second level rationalization that if I were too zealous, if I was too into this repentance and, mm. and walking with the Lord, I would be some kind of weird person that wouldn't be, you know, I'd be so heavenly minded, was no earthly good or whatever that old phrase is. Um, I, I <laughs> having been saved and, and been in ministry for the time I have. I've rarely seen that error. It's just, <laughs> it's just not a common error. I think we're more, uh, yeah. we hang our head on that far more than we should. And we should really just, I mean, God's not going to hurt us. Jesus is not going to steer us wrong. We give our life over to him. It's not going to be to our detriment. It's going yeah. to be to our eternal and temporal good. So it, it, we really ought to stop trying to tap a break and, and, and getting Jesus to slow down and let him do what he wants to do in our lives. Good stuff. And the last verse here, we'll just end with this. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep before the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? The ultimate goal in our repentance is not just so that we can avoid all the bad stuff, although obviously there's, there's self-interest involved. You can't get around that. But uh, to get to the point where we say, Ultimately, Lord, I want people to look and I want them to see you. And I want them to see the blessings that you pour out on your people and I don't want those blessings to be backed up or to be um, impeded in any way because of, of my sin. Amen. And so we'll, we'll close it up there. Next week we'll be looking at the goodness of God who restores the years that the locusts have eaten and who delights to richly pour out his blessings on those who humbly repent as we look at Joel chapter 2 verses 18 through 27. Hope to see you then. See ya. Bye. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.